Robert Carroll on February the 22nd, 2019. There's an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Subheadline, Robert Carroll's new book looks back at his own career, worrying readers who've waited since 2012 for the final volume of his Lyndon Johnson series. Have you ever seen anything like that on the front page of a newspaper? Uh, <laughs> it made me feel good in a way to know that a lot of people are waiting for it. <laughs> Unhappy. What did you think of that? Well, I hope when they read this book, they'll understand why I took a few months out to write it. The new book called Writing. Yeah, called Working. I'm sorry. Let's say called Working and Writing and Interviewing and the rest of it in the subtitle. So what's in this book? Well, it's more, it's about basically my experiences trying to find out about Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson and about political power and about how Moses and Johnson used political power and what is the nature of the political power that they employed to gain their ends. You have new information in here on interviewing. Yeah. Why did you do a chapter on interviewing? You know, um, people are always asking me about that. I've never, you know, I've never written anything about myself. And I suddenly realized that while it's, I, I want people to understand how power works, there's also things I wanted people, not advice, but just from my own experiences, things that I've encountered in trying to learn about power, how you try to learn about how it's really exercised. And I just wanted to uh, share a few of those experiences with people. Let me ask you about Robert Moses, because you tell us in the book, and the Power Broker's big book, published years and years ago, as you have told us before, still selling. Um, how often did you interview him, and how did you get the interview? Well, I didn't get to interview him at all for over two years. You know, Moses had been in power for 44 years. Here's a man who had more power than any mayor and any governor or any mayor and governor combined. And he shaped the whole New York region. And I, and I decided that I didn't know where he got this power from. Really, neither did anyone else. So over the course of his career, as it happens, many biographers had, tr had started or proposed doing books on him. And they were, I suppose, told the same thing I was told by his public relations. They said, he'll never talk to you. His family will never talk to you. His friends will never talk to you. And Brian, they, then they had some phrase. I don't remember how it went. But basically was, anyone who ever wants a contract from the city or state in the future will never talk to you. And he didn't talk to me for about two years. But I, so in sort of desperation, what I did was I drew a, sort, a series of concentric circles on a paper. There was a dot in the center. That's him. The, center, the circle around it is his family and closest friends. And there was another circle for further friends. I said, he can keep all the people on those inner circles from talking to me. But I bet he can't think of all the people in the outer circles who have encountered him in one way or another. And I started interviewing them. And I think he learned about that. I later was told 
this is complimentary to me, and I don't know if it's true, but his chief aide once said to me, after about two years, he realized that finally somebody was going to do a biography of him, whether he wanted it or not. And all of a sudden, his daughter called one day and said, she called him Papa Bear. She said, Papa Bear will see you. So after about two years, I went out to see him for the first time. Where did you see him, and what was it like? Well, beyond, on, at the far end of Jones Beach, the great swimming beach that he created on Long Island, was a little summer cottage called Oak Beach. And I went out to interview him in a day in May. It was deserted. All the other, all the other cottages were boarded up. I came around the corner, and there's his long limousine and three troopers standing there sort of at attention and his chauffeur. Then you went up the stairs into his this rather modest cottage, but he had torn out the walls at the end so that he, it was all one big picture. So he sat in the center in this big black leather chair. If you look to the left of him out the window was the Robert Moses Bridge, the Robert Moses Causeway to Fire Island. If you looked out the right-hand thing, there was the tower of Robert Moses State Park. So there's Robert Moses sitting framed by his monuments. I want to tell you, intimidating. And he got up, I'll never forget, he got up, he had this wonderful, charming smile. Tough old guy still mighty, still at the height of his power. I think he was 78 then, but still at the height of his power. And he said, so you're the young fellow who thinks he's going to write a book about me. So we had seven interviews. And then when I started asking him questions, really, that was the end of it, and I never saw him again. What do you mean by started asking him questions? Well, he... The first few interviews, they were more monologues than interviews. You know, they were fascinating. I mean, I had been, my pre only previous experience, I had been an investigative reporter for a new newspaper, Newsday on Long Island. And, well, I'll say this, I, I had won a couple of minor, I really mean really minor journalistic awards. And... But when you're young and you learn and you get it, you win anything, you think you know everything. I thought I knew about political power. As soon as he started talking, and he would talk sometimes, if you'd ask him a question, his answer might, he might, were monologues, might go on an hour. And he taught you, he taught me, I said, God, I know nothing at all compared to him. I didn't even understand how political power at his level worked. Then, uh, at, after, but at the same time, I'm going through Al Smith's papers, you know, his correspondence, Moses' correspondence with Al Smith, Moses' correspondence with Franklin Roosevelt when he was, he was governor, and I'm, some of the things he's telling me didn't comport with the facts. So after about seven, in the seventh interview, I started asking him about an incident that I knew he had kept secret for 45 years. The minute I mentioned the name connected with it, I could just see his eyes change. And he didn't say, didn't, just a few minutes later, he said, well, that's enough for today. 
And every time I called after that, he wouldn't see me. Did he read your book? Uh, I believe he did. Um, I don't know that for a fact. He want, uh, what I know is, this again is a compliment to myself, he had a team of investigators. What he would do, if a public official opposed him, one of the first things he would do was put his team of investigators, he called them my bloodhounds, to go back over the guy's life and see if there was anything disreputable that he, Moses, could threaten to expose. So I knew, I was told, because I had become friends with members of his entourage, he's put the bloodhounds on your book. And I always was pretty proud of the fact he issued this attack on me, you know, saying, there are hundreds of careless mistakes in them. And I replied by saying, name one. And he couldn't. I've always been proud of that, actually. Interviewing, you say that as you're sitting there interviewing somebody, you often write two letters down. S <laughs> U. Yes. What do they stand for and why do you do that? <laughs> well, S U stands for shut up. I, I found when I was interviewing that one of the great weapons is silence because people want to feel a need to fill the silence. So if you ask a question, they don't want to answer it. If you can just keep silent, that helps in a way to get them to, to fill the gap by saying something, and it's often telling you what you want. So I tend to talk too much. So every time I feel like talking, I write S-U in, in my notebooks. Tell us the Lady Bird Johnson interview story. Well, that, that's, that was... I say in this book, that was the only interview in my life when I couldn't look at the person I was interviewing. I had had a number of interviews with Mrs. Johnson, and they were tremendously helpful. Um, she would take this big de this desk calendar, the kind people used to use, and she'd take it for one year at a time, and she'd look through it and she'd say, oh, I see this night we had dinner with Sam Rayburn at Hall's restaurant. I remember that dinner, and this is what they talked about. After a number of years, I became aware, I found in the Johnson Papers, a telegram that really puzzled me because it was, Johnson was out in Australia during the war. And it was at a time when he had to decide whether he was going to... The senior Texas senator, Mara Shepard, had died. So Johnson had to decide whether he was going to run again for Congress or whether he was going to run for that Senate seat. He wanted to run for the Senate seat. You're only allowed one telephone call when you're out there. And he had evidently called someone named Alice. I had never heard of her. And she sent back a telegram which said, I think the exact text is in the book, everyone else thinks you should run for the Senate. I disagree. This is not correct. I think you should run for the House. That's not the exact wording. And he ran for the House. So in my mind is, who is Alice? 
then out of the blue, you know, you think you, you, you think you're you you're good at finding things out. So much of what you find out is sheer luck that has nothing to do with you. Not long after that, I'm sitting up in the reading room of the Johnson Library on the tenth floor, and the phone rings and on the archivist's desk, and she says it's for you. And I pick it up, and it's the receptionist in the lobby downstairs, and she says. There's two women here who would like to talk to you. Would you come down and talk to them? I had no idea who they were, but of course I went down. And the first thing, they introduced themselves, and they said, we want to tell you about Alice, because we know, we've read The Power Broker. We see how you do work. We know you're going to find out about Alice. That might not have been true without them. Uh, and we don't want her portrayed like just another bimbo, like just another one of Lyndon Johnson's affairs, because she was much more than that. And they told me about her, and I found other things in the, in the papers that supported what they were telling me. And I realized that she was not only a woman with whom Lyndon Johnson had had, well, their relationship went on for years, in fact, a couple of decades. I'm not sure that the sexual part of it lasted more than a couple of years. But she gave him political... You know, she was a great hostess in Washington, very sophisticated and politically brilliant woman. And she gave Johnson, who was then a young... She met when he was a young congressman, 29 years old, just came to Washington. So she taught him enough... Like... He had long, ungainly arms. So she taught him, she always wear French cuffs with nice cufflinks so those arms will become an asset, not a liability. Uh, she told him always to wear Countess Mara neckties, and he favored them the rest of his life. She said she was the one who told him always be photographed from the left side of your face because it looks better than the right side. This was invariably, she followed the advice, but the reason she was important in my mind was at a number of crucial points in Lyndon Johnson's career, this woman, Alice Glass, from the small town, who started out as a small town girl from Texas, she really gave him advice that in at least one case saved his career because I'm probably talking too long now about this. Not long, he was financed in his early career by Herman Brown of Brown and Root, the huge Texas contracting firm. And Herman Brown was prepared to keep financing Johnson, and Johnson was doing favors for Brown and Root, giving them contracts. But then there came a conflict, and it was a real conflict. Herman Brown owned a lot of low-rent houses, but houses from which he got a rental income in Austin. Lyndon Johnson wanted to build a housing project there. And to do that, he had to condemn most of these buildings. Herman Brown was enraged. Now, at the same time, Lyndon Johnson was getting Herman Brown contracts for a dam. And he wouldn't give in on wanting the, the housing projects there. And Herman Brown's chief lobbyist said, you know, Herman was about to turn on Lyndon. And when Herman turned on someone, he never turned back. 
Alice invites Alice Glass invites them both down to her huge estate in Virginia and says, why don't you compromise? Herman, you take the dam. Lyndon, you have the land. And all of a sudden, it was friendly again. There were a number of points in his career where he listened to her advice. So she was someone that mattered to me. So to find out about her, I was going to her hometown, Marlin, interviewing her family and friends. And all of a sudden, a friend calls and said, Lady Bird knows you've been to Marlin. Uh, so she knows you know about Mo Alice. No one would go to Marlin, actually, unless they had a purpose to go to Marlin. It was a little town in the middle of nowhere. So I said, well, there's nothing I did. So at that time, I was interviewing Mrs. Johnson, and her secretary said she would, the next interview should be out at the ranch. And I went out to the ranch, and we sat down for lunch. She was sitting at the head of the table. I was sitting at her right hand. I had my, my notebook that I take notes in over here. And without any preamble, she suddenly starts talking about Alice Glass and her beauty and her elegance and her sophistication and how she taught Lyndon things and gave him advice that he always followed. I must say during that interview, I couldn't look at Lady Bird Johnson the entire time. I just sat there taking notes. Did she talk with you again after that? Yes, <clears throat> yes. The, the next week we just went back to our regular interviews. We need to do some housekeeping. This is about our eighth hour at least that we've talked about Lyndon Johnson and over the years we started doing this in 1990 and the reason I mention that is because if this sounds like we're jumping around today that people can get on our C-SPAN archives and watch all of those interviews which go into a lot of different things and we're talking about I just wanted to mention that but the um, the housekeeping is you talk about it in the article in the Wall Street Journal you're 83 I'm not that far behind you uh, how's your health <laughs> As, as far as I know, okay, so far, so good. And you know why I'm asking you that. Everybody in, uh, wants to know, are you <laughs> going to get to the end of the fifth book on Lyndon Johnson? So give us, I mean, you said in that book there you had 300 and some manuscript pages done. How many do you have done now? Oh, to the I, new book. I, I didn't say, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter saw that. I'm still at that same spot because all I've done, that was a couple of weeks ago, is basically, well, I've, I've gotten, I'm, I'm rereading the 392 pages to get back really into the Johnson book. Is that, would, would that be 392 pages for a book or for? No, it's act, it would actually turn out to be, uh, we, you know, my pages, I cut and paste. I don't use a computer, I use a typewriter. So when I cut and paste, I actually cut out paragraphs and scotch tape them in. So I have a lot of long pages. Generally, the book turns out to be a little longer than the, than the number of pages of manuscript. When does this last book start and when will it end? I don't mean uh, writing time, but uh, in, in history. Well, it, it basically uh, begins with the, uh, Johnson's campaign. Well, it begins actually before, in 1964, which contained things like the Gulf of Tonkin incident 
and our invasion of the Dominican Republic. You know, Johnson sent 23,000 Marines to the Dominican Republic. It's an episode that's really pretty much forgotten by history, but it's a revealing episode. The Gulf of Tonkin is interesting. But it starts in 1964 when he's embarking on this great program of domestic legislation, the War on Poverty, the Civil Rights Act, that he's going to carry forward. He has the campaign against Goldwater. And then in 1965, which is basically where I'm up to now, uh, he's passing in a, an astonishing display of legislative genius to get this stuff through Congress. The Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, the War on Poverty, 70 separate education bills, and at the same time, he is in secret, basically, trying to keep it secret, escalating the Vietnam War. So if you wanted to say, that's about where I am now. You've often said in several interviews we've done that you're going to go to Vietnam. Are you still going to go to Vietnam, and when? Well, actually, right now I'm doing a section. Right, right, I'm going to go after I finish this section. You know, I sometimes take, well, you know this and understand it. I have long digressions in my books to set the stage, if you will, for, for something that he's doing. So right now... He's about to pass Medicare, which was first proposed decades before health insurance for the poor and the elderly. And I'm doing a section that you might call what it was, old, what it was like to be old and sick in America. What it was like to be old and sick in America before there was Medicare and Medicaid. Um, my current plan is when that section's finished, that's about the right time for me to go to Vietnam. You spent three years in the hill country of Texas. How long will you spend in Vietnam, do you think you need to, to, to get what you're looking for? You know, Brian, I can't... People don't like this answer, but it's the true answer. I don't know. You know, when we moved to the hill country of Texas, because I said, I don't understand that country, I don't, I don't understand the people... And therefore, I'm not understanding Lyndon Johnson, who grew up there. I didn't know it was going to take three years, you know. Uh, I have specific things I want to do in Vietnam, want to see, because I want to go into it in, in depth. Uh, and Can you I give have, us an idea of what you're looking for? <clears throat> well, I, ha I, I actually hate to do that, but I'll tell you one thing I know. Well, I, I, as I say, I hate to do that, but I want to show what it was like for American boys to fight in a jungle. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful books, memoirs, on the Vietnam War, which give me a picture of how incredible, how hard, how difficult it was for an American boy suddenly to find themselves in a jungle, what jungle fighting is. I've gotten very interested in that. And, um, but I feel that I have to see the sights of various battles in the jungle myself. I really have no idea. Uh, you really don't know 
how long it's going to take when you set out. Will you take Ina with you? Yes. And how is she doing? She's doing fine. And how would you describe, because you often give tribute to her all the time, what did she specifically do during these years for you? How did you work together? Well, that, that varies from year to year. In the book that you're holding, Working, I talk about uh, one thing that she did, when we, which was, <laughs> where I was, I, I was trying to find out about the lives of the women of the Hill Country before Lyndon Johnson in the 1940s bought them electricity. These women were nothing like women I had known in New York. Some of the, there was such a, an isolation and loneliness about them. You know, sometimes you go to interview one of them, the directions would be, you know, you go 41 miles out of Austin, you look for the cattle guards, you turn left, and you drive 30 miles on this unpaved road. Sometimes you realize you didn't pass another house on those 30 miles. So they're not used to talking to strangers, and they're not used to talking about personal things. I used to, I, before that, I thought, oh, I could get, I could interview anybody. But I couldn't, get, I couldn't get these women to talk to me about their lives. So Ina, who has this great gift for making friends, learned how to make, we had three fig trees on our property. So she learned how to make fig preserves. And, that, and when she would go to interview these people, and she'd bring my jar of fig preserves. And that's next friends. Then she could bring me back, and the women would talk more friendly, more friendly to me. But of course, that denigrates what Ina does. I mean, Ina does research in papers for me. She's the only person that I've ever trusted to do research on the power broker or, or any of my books. Uh, I feel if there's something in a section of papers that I assign, that I ask her to do for me, if there's anything there, she'll find it. Can I say on this program that that overlooks the fact that she's written two books of her own on the intersection, really, of history and travel in France that have become classics in travel literature? Let's go to researching, because we're on this topic. You have a chapter in this book working, LBJA. What's that mean? Well, that's really a section, that's a designation of papers that, over the years, his staff and archivists removed from his general files in his house office or his Senate office and put in various L files which are lumped under LBJA. There's LBJA confidential file, LBJA associates files, uh, LBJA pre-presidential personal files, but they're especially significant documents. And I want you to tell the story about how you found the time when Lyndon Johnson changed. Well, can I say the reason that I was doing what I'm about to tell you, when I was a young reporter, I fell by accident into becoming an investigative reporter. I knew nothing about being an investigative reporter. But I had this wonderful editor, real guy out of the front page, out of the 1920s, who took me in hand 
and taught me really how to be a reporter. The big thing he said to me, which relates to this, is just remember, turn every page. Never assume anything. Turn every goddamn page. Well, of course, in the Johnson Library, you can't... It's so huge, you can only... But I said, I'm going to look at all the pages for his first three or four years as congressman because I want to paint a picture of what it's like to be a young congressman in Washington, which is what I try to do in, in my books. And there are all these boxes and things, and I kept thinking, no, turn every page. And I began to notice that something that over the course of these first few years, something had changed. Like there are these letters from Johnson to committee chairman or senior congressman that were, you know, pleading letters, the letters that a guy without power would write, a junior congressman without power would write to somebody, a senior congressman who had power and who Johnson needed. This is in the late 30s. In the late, thir thir he came in 37. We're talking now 38, 39, and 40, 1940. Congressman from Texas. A, a young congressman came when he was 29 from Texas. No power, just another nobody, lower-rung congressman. But somehow, in these three years, where all the letters were mushed together from different years, there were also letters from these same senior congressmen to him asking basically, Lyndon, can I have a few minutes of your time? Lyndon, you know, why were there these two kinds of letters? So I put them into chronological order, and I saw there was a change. The letters where he was begging for something all were dated before the month of October 1940. The letters that were dated after November 5th, 1940, Election Day 1940, they were the opposite letters. They were people who wanted something from him. So what had happened? So at that time, I was interviewing a guy who I think you, you met, Tommy Corcoran? I actually never met him. Oh, well, he was, you know, a, he was a Washington, he was the Washington lobbyist, fixer, you know, the and a great source for me. And I was interviewing him at that time, and he was totally frank about everything. So I said to him, what happened in October 1940? I'll never forget this. He says, he used to call me kid. He said, I said, what happened in 19, October 1940? He said, money, kid, money. But he said, you're never going to be able to write about that kid. And I said, why not? He said, because Lyndon never put anything in writing. And I believed, you know, that was probably true. Because um, I've never put anything in my books that I can't document. But I remember this advice to turn every page. And I was looking through every file folder that related to 1940. There were a lot of them. And all of a sudden, the documentation in writing was there. In fact, one of the things that was there was one of the most... I'm interested in showing the sources of political power. There's a document there. It's a typed list. 
both John Connolly, who was one of Johnson's aides, and then Walter Jenkins, they both said they typed the list. I don't know which one typed it, but there it was. There were a lot of states. So there were two typed columns. In the left-hand column is the name of the congressman. In the center column, the second column is what he wanted, how much money he wanted, and what he wanted the money for, for the campaign of 1940. The amounts were so small in terms of today's politics, you wouldn't believe it. Lyndon needs $1,500 for last-minute ads. Or Lyndon, they're trying to cheat us at the polls, need $500 for poll watchers. But in the left-hand margin, in Lyndon Johnson's own handwriting, was what he decided to do with each request. If he was going to give the guy the money that he asked for, he wrote, okay. If he was going to give him part of the money he asked for, he'd write, okay, 500, or okay, 300. But sometimes he wrote, he wrote none. And sometimes he wrote none out. I asked John Connolly what none out meant. Connolly said he was never going to get any money from Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson never forgot, and he never forgave. But where did Johnson get this money to distribute to the congressman? I found the documentation of that also in telegrams from George Brown of Brown and Root. The money came mostly from Brown and Root, from other Texas oil men who needed favors and the oil depletion allowance from the federal government. Lyndon Johnson was a political genius. He's a junior congressman. He has no power. How is he going to get it? What is the only thing that he has that no other congressman has? He's the only congressman who knows two groups of people. Congressmen, liberal congressmen, many of them from the North, who needed money for campaigns, and Texas oilmen, conservatives, who wanted federal influence and were willing to give money to get it. He said, only give it through me, the money, and all of a sudden he had national political power. One of the things I did in preparation for the interview is go back and look at the, the, the death dates on a lot of your sources. And I've just got the list in front of me. I'm going to read it very quickly. Horace Busby, 2000, he died. George Brown, 1983. Uh, Sam Houston Johnson, 78. I'll get back to that. 2002, Herman Talmage, 1981, was Tommy the Cork. Corcoran, 2007, Lady Bird Johnson. <laughs> Posh Altorf, or Altorf, was, he died in 2004, and Moses in 1981. The reason I mentioned the death dates on you're still writing about this. They are all gone. Do you have any attitude about using what they told you in confidence back then now that they're gone? Is there any, does anything change in your mind when somebody is deceased. Yeah, but, but let me correct you on one thing. Uh, when I talk to somebody, they know it's for a book. Um, I'm, not say, I, I'm not saying to people, uh, I'm only using this as an anonymous source. I, I, don't, I don't believe, well, I've written so many books, I, I don't believe uh, many times in my book the sources aren't named. I'm sure there, there are a few. So that's not the concern. You know what the concern is? You mentioned Horace Busby and George Reedy. So I had 22 formal long interviews with Horace Busby. He became a great 
friend. You know, for he's forgotten by history now, but for a long time, uh, before Bill Moyers, for example, Horace Busby was the aide who Johnson really was was closest to in a paternal way. I was able to call Busby. We reached and George Reedy, the two of them, because Reedy was his chief aide for uh, his press aide, and but but a great strategist for years. And I became real. We became real friends. When Busby had a stroke during this time, went into the hospital. When he got out, he wrote a letter to Ina. He had a crush on Ina. He said, all I could think of when they, when they took me into the hospital, all I could think of when they took me in was, now Robert won't have anyone to tell him about the vice presidency. But he recovered. But I could pick up the phone. I'm typing away. And I could say to Reedy or Busby, that scene you told me about Johnson talking to George Wallace, was Johnson in the rocking chair or on the sofa? Reedy would say, the rocking chair. I'd say, thanks. And I could just go back to typing. Now they're all, what you just said, they're all dead. I can't do that anymore. Uh, that's a real loss to me. Please talk some more about your own approach to the fifth book. And as you know, uh, you're not a spring chicken anymore. So what are your plans? What are you thinking? I, and I remember uh, years ago, uh, Paul Reed wrote the book on uh, uh, William Manchester, and he was, you know, uh, getting older and was sick and all that stuff. But what are your plans? Because, you know, a lot of people out there say, we want to know what your conclusions are on Lyndon Johnson and the war. Do you have a plan in the event that this doesn't go well for you? from a health standpoint, that it will eventually be published no matter whether you've finished it or not? It's, it sounds like a cruel question, but there it is. Well, the, the one thing I know is I'm never going to let my books, this book, be finished by anyone else. Whatever I've written is going to be published. If I don't finish the book, that's it. I have in my will, my literary executives know, no one is going to finish my book. I think what happened with William Manchester's book was a disgrace because he was such a great writer, a great narrator, and people who have read the first two volumes of his Churchill biography know they're in the hands of a great writer. The third book is written by largely, I don't know, the by somebody else. Paul Reed, yeah. In my view, it is not of the same quality of the other books. But younger people who read that book first will think, oh, William Manchester's not such a good writer. And they won't go back to the first two books. And that's a real tragedy. Nobody is going to publish a book with my name on it, with a word in it that I haven't written myself. If you're asking me, do I think about dying before I finish? Of course I, I do. Of course, uh, by the way, you say that it's the, the fifth volume is several years off. That is correct. Um, but I'm not going to rush that book or change the way I approach that book from the way I approach the other books because what would be the sense of that? I'm going right along with this book the same way I did the other books. Uh, 
That's all I can answer. Okay. Bob Gottlieb has edited every word of, that you've ever written yeah. in these books. He's 87. Yes. <laughs> yes. What's your attitude? Is, is he still active? And has he seen any of what you've written up till now? Of the fifth book? Yes. No, I don't, I don't ever show Bob. I have never shown Bob or any editor anything until the book is done. I don't show anyone a word of anything I wrote. Uh, before the book is done. Einer is the only person who reads the book as I go along. Let me ask you, uh, you spent a lot of time in your book uh, about the difficulty of making money in your early years. I want to ask you about your later years. About? Your later years. I want to ask you about when you became a success. I don't know whether this is, um, and you may not want to even talk about this, but the Wall Street Journal article said you've published at least 1.5 million books. Would you agree with that? Well, that's the publisher's figure. They know how many copies right. they sold, yeah. I'm not sure this even works either, <laughs> but let's say you got $4 a book. That's $6 million. When in your life did you become a financial success and change the way you live? Because you had some very difficult years where you had to sell the house to survive. Yeah. And how much of that can you tell us, just so that if somebody's looking at the rest of their lives and they want to be a writer, when does it start to be a positive from a financial standpoint? Well, that's, a, I have to think of, well, the, the easy part of the answer is all the time, the first five years or so that I was working on the power broker, that was a time of being broke. Um, really broke. You know, my advance, and I, I talk about that in this book, Working. My advance for that book was $5,000, of which they gave you twenty five hundred. The contract was for $5,000, of which they gave you $2,500. You were going to get the other $2,500 when you finished. So for one year, I had a grant from a foundation, so I quit my job. But we, I was a reporter. We basically had no savings. Um, so when the grant ran out, we had no money. We had a small house on Long Island. This was before the real estate boom. So we bought that house, I remember, for $45,000 with a big mortgage. And we sold it for $70,000. So we made $25,000 or so. That was enough to live and move to an apartment in the Bronx, which we didn't like. That was a bad time for us. But that was enough to live for a year. And, you know, we had a son. Um, and then we were out of money. Ina went to work teaching. But then I got hurt playing basketball. Uh, <laughs> I, should have, I should have stopped playing basketball. And I, had a, I needed someone to do the research because so, I, I couldn't get out of bed for a, a lot of months at that time. So I had to stop teaching and do research for me. So we were really broke. Um, we, when we look back at that time, that was a time of really struggling financially. Then the New Yorker 
I mean, since you asked these personal questions, after about five years, my, the publishing house I first signed with had very little interest in the book. After about five years, there came a moment when I could leave that publishing house because my editor left, and I didn't have an agent. So I, someone gave me a list of agents, and I found this wonderful agent. This was this, the year here, I think, was 1971. So Lynn Nesbitt has been my agent for uh, 29 and 19, for 48 years. And she read the book, and she put me together with Bob Gottlieb, who's been my editor for, 44, for 48 years. This is, this is sort of incredible. 48 years of bitter fights, I may say, because he's a very strong-willed person, but he's also a great editor for me. And um, the power broker never, you know, it was never any sort of a bestseller. It's, I mean, it's now, you say it's in its, I think, 55th printing. So obviously that goes, it's used by many colleges. For the Johnson books, um, I didn't know how long they were going to take, so what I used to do was a lot of lecturing, you know, hate, I really didn't like doing that, but you can make money doing that. But gradually, when the Johnson books, so the last three books have all been the number one bestsellers in the New York Times list, so obviously things have changed now. Um, but they changed gradually. Uh, when, did we, when were you first paid to give a speech? And what triggered what? that? I'm sorry? And what triggered that? In other words... Well, oh, I probably was paid like... At the beginning, I used to get paid $500. But then I suddenly realized, you know, there are people out... I, I, people seem to think... I know this because they would invite... Organizations would invite me back, like business, you know, organizations, conventions, things like that. That there were real lectures fees out there. And for a while, I gave a lot of lectures um, for no other reason but to make money. I, I didn't like, I don't like giving lectures. Um, Still don't? I'm sorry? Still don't? No, I, I do, now I, I do very, very few, actually. You're about the only interviewer I, I feel so comfortable with you because we've had all these interviews. I don't usually feel like this. <laughs> But for somebody that says they, they want to devote their lives to writing and they have to make a living on it, lectures, uh, your advances, but your advances have to cover almost a lot of years. Yes. And you have your own office. Do you have to pay for your own office? And when you travel, like, for instance, you take this trip to Vietnam, is that on your nickel? Yeah. Well, I, now, things are, are, now things are fine. Um, that's all I, I mean. You know, a, a lot of, I, I get a, what you would consider an amazing amount, <laughs> I consider, a, of calls and emails from write, young writers sort of asking me what you are asking me. I really have no answer for them. For myself, there was never any question. 
I mean, I wanted to finish the power broker. That was, I, I mean, you really felt, I'm not going to be able to finish that. We're not going to be able to live. That, that was until things changed. Um, but I, w I really wanted to finish that book. And if you really want to write, if you feel you have something you want to say, my feeling is you better try to do it because you're going to be, I would be pretty unhappy if I hadn't tried. I want to read you back something you've said in your book. There is still so much about myself that I don't understand. Well, that's certainly the truest thing I said in this book. Why did you write that? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Well, I think that's in relation to why my books take so long, if I remember what part of the book that's in. Why do I go down these long paths? Why do I say in the middle of a book, I have to go live in the, we have to go live in the Texas Hill Country because I don't understand this. In The Power Broker, why did I say I have to take six months and research one neighborhood that Robert Moses destroyed. So what it means when a highway to really show, to make people... You see, this is all... I don't understand wh what it is in me, but there's, there's so many things I don't understand in me. But I think that that sentence you just read is, I don't understand why when I think of something like I can't just say the human cost of highways. I have to show in my books the human cost of highways by showing what happens to hum the human beings in their path or public officials who oppose Robert Moses. And you say, but we don't have any money. This happened when we were living in the Bronx. And I said to Ina, but this time I would stop fooling myself. This is going to take six months. You have to learn about the neighborhood. You have to read the news, neighborhood newspapers, you know, the weekly newspapers. You have to find the people who used to live there, and they're scattered all over the place. You have to go and interview them. This is going to take six months. That was a hard decision. But I never, I wasn't able, I think this is where I wrote that, but I couldn't go on with the book. I kept trying to outline the book without that chapter in it. And I remember I couldn't do it. I mean, I would sit there making outlines and throwing away outlines and saying, this is no good, this is no good. It's not going to be any good. I want to have to... That's when I realized that if I wanted to write about political power, the way I wanted to write about it, I had to be able to show and to show in enough detail so that the reader could empathize with them, could feel with them, I had to show not only the powerful, but the powerless. And it takes a long time to learn about farmers on Long Island or farmers in the Texas Hill Country that you know nothing about. I, I don't know that I am. I, I don't know how <clears throat> to ask this. Um, but is there a chance that after all these years, and and you've been working on this stuff for since 1967, the books, 
uh, that you have become the story more than what you're writing about. I mean, you go back to the way we started this, the front page of the Wall Street Journal. People want to know, and I'm sitting here asking the same kind of questions. They want to know more about you than they want to know about a Lyndon Johnson or a, or a Moses after all these years. Well, <laughs> that's why I wrote this book. I said I'm, I may not have time to write a full-scale memoir about all, all my experiences, but I get so many questions about them that I think I'll put down a few of them now. And that's why, that's why I wrote Working, exactly for that reason. I said, if I don't get to write the memoir after the Johnson books, let me give a little glimpse of what it's like to try and find out how power works. It's, it's a book about finding out how power works, really, in a way. How long did you spend on putting this book together? Oh, working? very very little time. <laughs> it was like I was working last um, last summer, and I suddenly was thinking, you know, you get so many. I, 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 a class had come out to see me, and the kids were so interested in how I worked, which I don't, you know, I never did it. I never talked or wrote about, about myself and how I worked. There are no articles, really, on how I worked. And I suddenly said, well, maybe I won't get to do a whole book and really say how I worked, so I'll give some glimpses. I'll show a few interviews, what it's like to interview. I'll, go, I'll show something about how you go through, what I found when you go through papers, not how, it's not advice, it's just some glimpses of what it's like. By the way, I forgot to ask you earlier, it, I think I remember you that Bill Moyers has never talked to That you. is correct. Is he still saying no? Yes. Well, I haven't asked him. He said no so many times. I haven't asked Did him. Did you ever know why he said no? No. Um, I, I will say he speaks. I don't think it's because he doesn't like the books. He's spoken in publicly, in public, very highly of these books. But he's always said he won't talk to me. He's really the only one, I think. We're about out of time, and, and I want to shift completely because, I, and I don't know whether you can do this or not, but you spoke out against Donald Trump early in the campaign in July back in 19, uh, 2016. Yeah. If you're someone looking at the president right now and you wanted to do, a, just like you've done on Alinda Johnson, study power, is it there? Or do we already know everything about how he uses power and what he is with all the documentaries and everything that's been done on him? Another great question. Well, all I can say is I've come across things in Lyndon Johnson that we thought we knew everything about. Let me mention one, the Gulf of Tonkin. But then you sit there and you say, I'm going to turn every page of the notes, the papers on this. I'm going to interview everyone who's still alive, who's in the White House, who was involved with this. You say, what we knew was just like, what I thought I knew was just like the icing on the top of the cake. Look at what was going on that you only find out 
in later years. You uh, so the answer is, I think the reporting on Donald Trump's White House has been great. You know, I, I follow it with fascination, and, and it's simply uh, great for me as a writer to think, one by one, the stories are all corroborated, you know? So the reporting is great. Do I think for my, from my own experience that we know the whole story? I would guess not at all. If I correctly counted right, you've written about 5,000 pages in all your <laughs> books <clears throat> since 1967. And this is a small book. It's 200, 207 pages long, and it's called Working. And as you know, the subtitle is Researching, Interviewing, and Writing from our guest, Robert A. Caro. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you again. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.